And welcome to the Deep Dive Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Nick Espinoza, and we're going to be talking about all things cybersecurity, cyber warfare, and technology related. And I think we're one of the only ones out there that's doing that right now. If you'd like to be part of the radio show in any way, shape, or form, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NickAESP. Again, that's NickAESP. Or you can send us an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. We have an action-packed show as always. There's always a lot to cover, so stick around with us as we deep dive into a topic and we catch up on everything else. So without further ado... Let's begin. And we've got a great show for you this week. We're obviously going to be catching up on news and all of that. But our deep dive is going to be, can a U.S. president declassify anything they want? And with everything swirling around, uh, you know, with Mar-a-Lago and the warrant being served on former President Trump and him claiming, I just declassified everything. We're going to dive in into this because I did my homework. I did the research. I'm going to give you the statutes. I'm going to tell you exactly what a president can and cannot declassify and what options they have. So stick around for that. It's going to be great. And as always, let's start with the news. And in aging news, you're getting old and it's all your screen's fault. Now, I found this to be really interesting. I think we're all a little bit guilty of this, myself included, because I'm also getting old and it's all my screen fault as well. Now, here's what's going on. This is coming from Study Finds. I thought this was absolutely just interesting. Here's what's up. Too much blue light from gadgets like televisions, laptops, and smartphones can accelerate the aging process, according to a new study. Now, researchers found that the light could also lead to the onset of obesity and also psychological problems as well. Dr. Jed Wiga, Glubluchkowitz, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrect. Um, basically, uh, they're a bio- they are a professor at the Department of uh, Integrative Biology at Oregon State, and I quote the doctor. Excessive exposure to blue light from everyday devices such as televisions, laptops, and phones may have detrimental effects on a wide range of cells in our body, from skin and fat cells to sensory neurons. We are the first to show that levels of specific metabolites, chemicals that are essential for cells to function correctly, are altered in fruit flies exposed to blue light, end quote. Now, the research team experimented with fruit flies and discovered that the light from screens affected them as well. This is significant since human and flies, interestingly enough, have similarities on a cellular level. If you've ever seen Jeff Goldblum's The Fly, you know it's true. Now, the team also found that the cells in fruit flies don't function at an optimal level after exposure to blue light, which they suggest could lead to premature death. That's awesome. Now, through an examination of the cells in the in the flies' brains, they discovered that levels of one metabolite succinate increased while glutamate levels dropped. And to quote the doctor again, because... You know, I don't know this. And I quote, Succinate is essential for producing the fuel for the function and growth of each cell. High levels of succinate uh, off after exposure to blue light can be compared to gas being in the pump but not getting into the car. Another troubling discovery was that molecules responsible for communication between neurons, such as glutamate, are at a lower level after blue light exposure. Now, low levels of glutamate could result in a decrease in brain function, possibly causing premature aging, according to the study. This is probably why I forget everything. Now, 
In the world we live in, obviously blue light is flipping everywhere and it's active all hours of the day. And to quote the doctor again, LEDs have become the main illumination in display screens such as phones, desktops, and TVs, as well as ambient lighting. So humans in advanced societies are exposed to blue light through LED lighting during most of their waking hours. Our study suggests that avoidance of excessive blue light exposure may be a good anti-aging strategy. And so with that... There's not many tips, uh, you know, for this, but here are the tips that I could find for blocking blue light. And for the record, um, I just have to say, if you are as old as me, you might remember the commercials in the 1980s, or maybe it was the 1990s, for blue blocker sunglasses. I never thought they looked good, but this was what they were talking about back in the 80s, so obviously those things were prophetic. So the first tip is, obviously, you can find glasses that uh, block blue light. Go get yourself some blue blockers. Also, you can get glasses that have those kinds of tints. I know uh, gamer glasses, I believe, have like yellow tint that blocks blue. So you can, it's basically easier on your eyes to watch screens, which is the other thing that you can do. Blue light filters or nighttime filters on phones and computer screens can also help. So I sit in front of my computers and my phone all day. I have those things running 24-7. Basically, it kind of warms the colors, deadens the blue, but I can still see everything. I can, you know, watch watch what I need to watch. I can write, you know, emails, et cetera, et cetera, browse the web. And I am protecting my eyes with that. And it's interesting because then when I'm in front of a phone, for example, that doesn't have that blue light filter on, it looks vastly different. And just given how much I travel, given how much I'm on devices, that's how I protect my eyes. So make sure that you're doing that because the last thing you want to do is be obese and forgetful and old because of blue light. And that seems to be what this article is saying. So now you know how to protect yourself. Go get yourself some blue blockers. Should have invested in them like 20, 30 years ago. And in artificial intelligence news, I hate to say this, but the AI says that you're fired and welcome to the future. Here's what's going on. It's coming from the New York Post, and this is alarming. Honestly, I could do a deep dive on this one. I probably will in the future now that I'm thinking about it, but here's what's going on. Facebook is the latest large tech company to begin mass layoffs, choosing 60 contractors reportedly at random using an AI to make the decision for them. According to Business Insider, workers were informed via a video conference call that they would have no more work as of September 2nd. So obviously we've passed that like a couple weeks ago or a week ago, with their pay ending on October 3rd. No specific reasons were given beyond being chosen at random. Now, the layoffs are perhaps not surprising, considering that during a company-wide Q&A meeting in late June, uh, Mark Zuckerberg himself warned that employees' recent markets, that a, he warned employees that a recent market slump, quote, might be one of the worst downturns that we've seen in recent history prompting the need for, quote, aggressive performance reviews, end quote, to help weed out underperforming employees. Obviously, I'm not a fan of Facebook. I make no, no bones about that whatsoever. But using an artificial intelligence, I think is just shows, I mean, I think the guy lacks emotional empathy. I, I just, I think he's, I think he's non-empathetic person. Because could you imagine, I mean, you're popping in metrics into an artificial intelligence. It's rating against everything else. But there are so many things that artificial intelligence cannot pick up on nuance, you know, ties like the cohesion that maybe a person that doesn't perform as well as another person, but that person brings cohesion to the team. There's so many different things. So getting fired by an artificial intelligence is seriously, seriously not cool. But I think it's coming. We've seen AIs make choices in hiring. So it would make it would make sense that we would see choices in firing. And I think I might do a deep dive on 
this one because it's crazy. If you if you'd want to hear a deep dive, send me a message. Let me know. But I'm 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 thinking about it for the next episode or three, one of those. So there you go. But that is your unfortunately your AI news of the week. And in Apple news, and this one's actually interesting because Apple could be the newest privacy nightmare. And we're now just learning about this. This is actually coming from CNBC. And you don't think about Apple in this way. They've got excellent marketing. But here's what's going on, again, coming from CNBC. Because according to a study published about a week ago Tuesday or so by AppSumer, Apple is gaining momentum in digital ads while Google and Facebook appear to be losing steam. Now, this research was based on analysis of the online ad budgets for over 100 different consumer app companies and found that Apple's ad business has benefited from the company's major iOS privacy update in 2021, which made it more difficult for companies like Facebook to track users across the internet. iOS, for the record, is the operating system that runs the iPhone and the iPad. So if you have an iPhone, you have iOS. That is the the platform that it runs. They had a huge update in 2021, really ticked off Facebook, and here we are. Now, Apple's search ads let people advertise on the iPhone maker's App Store. Advertiser adoption rate for the second quarter rose almost four points from a year earlier to 94.8%, while Facebook's adoption fell three points to 82.8%, according to AppSumer. Google's rate also declined by two points to 94.8, meaning these these groups are, are basically trying to integrate all of these for different advertising platforms, and Apple is rising while Facebook and Google are lowering. Now, Apple, quote, has joined the duopoly of Facebook and Google at the top table of advertiser adoption, according to AppSumer. Now, a general manager of AppSumer, Shmuel, um, Lace attributed Apple's improved standing to an increase in the number of app developers willing to pay big money to bolster downloads. At the same time, Apple's app tracking transparency update, or ATT, has limited the amount of data that ad-based apps like Facebook can use to help brands with their online ad campaigns. So in terms of overall app developer spend on online advertising, referred to basically as a share of the wallet, Google is still the largest at 34%, Facebook's at 28%, but Apple is now at 15%, which is a large jump. And so I think, and just, and this is my own opinion outside of CNBC, that a case could be made that Apple is intentionally making it harder or has made it harder for their competitors like Facebook to advertise on their platforms in order to increase their own share or maybe even try to corner the market uh, basically for the iPhone. And this news also comes for the record as iPhones are now the most dominant phone in the U.S. market but kind of. According to CounterPoint research data via the Financial Times, they are suggesting that Apple has attained its highest, highest ever market share of the smartphone space in the United States in June of this year. Now, based on the active install base, a statistic accounting for all smartphones in use today, iPhones account for 50% of all active phones in the United States, which basically is is the number one competitor because there are about 150 other devices that make up the rest of the user base. So Samsung has various models, but you either have an Apple or you have an Android. And only one company makes Apple, which is Apple products. They, they're the only ones that make iPhone, but Android is made by Samsung and Huawei and LG and, you know, take your pick. Every other platform, Motorola, they're all using um, they're all using Android. And so what makes that interesting is that now we've got 
iPhones clearly being incredibly dominant. You've got Apple clearly cornering or attempting to corner or, or at least raise their shares by, by making it harder for their competitors to compete on their platforms. And so I think if they keep rising in market share, what we may actually see are lawsuits going on. I mean, think about this. Facebook was absolutely ticked off in 2021 when this privacy change or this privacy update came out uh, to the point where they had actually integrated um, into Facebook like a, like a pop-up for iPhone users initially where it said, hey, if you basically are now opting out of our tracking, we may actually have to start charging users for Facebook use. That is a huge shift because obviously they've always made their money by data mining the bejesus out of you and then selling it to advertisers. But if you're being, if you're opting out to tracking, if Facebook can't see, let's say, the habits that you're doing on what you're buying, it makes it much harder for them to turn around and tell advertisers, yes, we can 100% guarantee or almost guarantee that the people that you're going to, that are going to see your ad are people that would be interested in your product. That's what we're talking about here. And if Apple is cornering that market on the iPhone, which is now the largest, uh, basically, platform, literally 50% of all active phones in the United States, and you know, and obviously Android blows them away in the world, but iPhone is huge, we are looking at a massive, massive, massive Apple win here. And the other thing to think about, too, here is that in order to be excellent at advertising, like basically targeted advertising, meaning my company would want to buy your targeted advertising, you have to be really good at getting me to my target audience. Otherwise, why am I paying? So think about that. But that is your Apple news of the week. We'll see where this goes. And in mobile privacy news, if you didn't know, most mobile carriers here in the United States are keeping your geolocation data for over two years and you can't opt out. Now, here's what's going on. This is coming from CyberScoop, and I thought this was really interesting. 10 of the top 15 mobile carriers collect geolocation data and provide no way for you, the consumer, to opt out, according to information from the telecom companies that the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, published about two weeks ago or so. Now, the carrier's answers to questions about data collection and retention from the FCC come in response to a July request from the agency seeking information on geolocation practices in the light of concerns of how law enforcement could use phone data to arrest people like abortion seekers in states where the procedure is now illegal or soon will be outlawed. So, for example, Texas, that is obviously very restrictive. You know, if you're a, a woman leaving Texas to go to, I don't know, California or a nearby state, uh, now the location data can basically, from the carrier, can basically show the state of Texas if they suspect you've had an abortion, which is a crime in that state, that you've gone out of state to do something what they deem as illegal. That's what we're talking about here. Not to mention, you know, just geofence warrants and all that kind of stuff. But I digress, because AT&T... Best Buy Health, Charter, Comcast, Consumer Cellular, C Spire, Dish Network, Google Fi, H2O Wireless, Lycra Mobile, Mint Mobile, Red Pocket, T-Mobile, U.S. Cellular, and Verizon all responded to the FCC inquiry. And according to FCC Chairwoman Justin, uh, Jessica Rosen-Warsell, and I quote, Our mobile phones know a lot about us. That means carriers know who we are who we call, and where we are at any given moment. This information and geolocation data is really sensitive. It's a record of where we've been and who we are. That's why the FCC is taking steps to ensure this data is protected. End quote. 
I think she's 100% right there. Now, in their responses, the companies generally cited the need to comply with law enforcement requests as well as FCC rules as their reason for being unable to allow consumers to opt out of collection and retention, meaning you can't go to the Verizons of the world and say, yes, don't collect my data at all. Now, the responses provided a window into data retention practices, which ranged from two months to five years for cellular tower data for the responding companies. Only seven of the companies explicitly mentioned protecting that data with encryption. That is nuts. I hope the other you know, seven or eight are actually doing it and just didn't say they are. Now, geolocation data obviously offers a detailed window into the life of the person, including everything from where they shop to what medical providers they seek out, meaning you're going to that Planned Parenthood across the state and boom, there you go. Now, the agency isn't relying on the carrier's responses, though. Chairwoman Rosen Warsell tasked the agency's Enforcement Bureau with a follow-up investigation into making sure that carriers are actually following FCC rules that require them to disclose how they are using and sharing geolocation data. And this is not a new problem. If you remember uh, the podcast, the super popular podcast, I don't know, five plus years ago uh, called Serial about that um, guy named Adnan Syed, I believe his name was, uh, when he was like a senior in high school and he was accused of killing his girlfriend in high school and it was this huge trial he claimed innocence even to this day he was convicted in part because they were able to pull cellular records uh, text messages cell tower data all this kind of stuff and try to pinpoint where his mobile phone was at the time and that was 1999 and we really haven't in, in, improved that much when it comes to the privacy and security of these things. So there you go. We're going to see where this goes, but understand that, you know, you have a mobile phone. You might be listening to me on that mobile phone. If you're streaming uh, your radio station through one of the apps, or you're listening to this on my SoundCloud account uh, when it comes out and, and understand that, that that phone is always with you. You are constantly being tracked as am I, as is everybody else. So there you go. That is your privacy news of the day. You can't say You haven't been told that at least your cell phone company knows exactly where you are at pretty much all times. And in Facebook being awful to you, this is what the news we're talking about today, Facebook and Instagram, because their web browser is stealing your credit card information, and it's also tracking everything else you do online, so that's great. Now, here's what's going on. It's coming from the Daily Star, and I think this is important, all you Facebook and Instagram users, because Facebook and Instagram are reportedly, quote, rewriting websites, end quote, visited by their users so they can follow them around the internet. Now, a research team from ex-Google, in, uh, basically from an ex-Google engineer, claims that the social networks inject other websites with a tracking code, uh, basically whenever a link is open through the in-app browser. So if you've ever used Facebook, for example, and you know one of your friends has posted a link to, um, you know, I don't know, an article in the Wall Street Journal, whatever it is, you tap on the link, you'll note it doesn't actually go into your browser like Chrome or Safari. It keeps you within the Facebook ecosystem. That is the in-app browser. So what this means is that Facebook and Instagram can monitor everything from your internet history to, quote, your passwords, addresses, and credit card numbers. Now, Meta, the parent of Facebook, responded to these claims saying that the tracking code following users' privacy preferences and that the data gathered is only aggregated for use in targeted advertising. However, the privacy researcher Felix Krauss said, quote, the Instagram app injects their tracking code into every website shown, including uh, when clicking on ads, enabling them to monitor all user interactions like every button and link tapped, text selections, screenshots as well. 
as any as well as any form inputs like passwords, addresses, and credit card numbers. Meaning, you see that field, you're going to buy that cool thing, or like, hey, I want a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, and you punch in all that information in the in-app browser, they can grab and record all of that information. In a statement, Meta, the parent of Facebook, responded to these claims saying, quote, we intentionally developed this code to honor people's tracking choices on our platforms. And, well, thank you for honoring my monitoring my choice and honoring my choice, but stop monitoring my choice. And I totally screwed that up, but you know where I was going with that. My God. So anyway, don't use the in-app browser. If you need to buy something or let's say a friend links something and you really want to see it, basically you can go into the in-app browser and say open in Chrome or Safari or Brave or whatever app browser uh, your your standard browser is, get out of the Facebook ecosystem as best you can, or you can just remove Facebook and Instagram from your phone. I'd be cool with that too. But that is your Facebook and Instagram tracking news of the week. And in romance news, because, oh yeah, we're getting funky with romance here on the Deep Dive Radio Show, not just cybersecurity. We're going to be talking about internet dating real quick. This is a news segment, not a deep dive, although honestly, this could also be a deep dive as well. So I think this is an interesting one, and I think we may see a changing face in privacy here, but we also have a changing face of romance in human interaction as well. This is coming from the New York Post, and I found this to be really interesting because most Americans believe young adults today face more challenges than their parents' generation, particularly when it comes to things like saving for the future, paying for college, buying a home, finding a spouse is one of those things. And that's according to Pew Research. Now, a deluge of dating app options is not helping either. A new study found that Americans are more than twice as likely to say that younger adults today have it harder than their parents' generation, 46%, when trying to find a spouse. Uh, compared to those who say they have it easier, which is 21%. Around a third, 32%, say the chances are about the same. Now, Dr. Jen Gonsalias, uh, a sociologist, intimacy speaker, and author, told The Post that the aforementioned factors Pew Research uh, found to be more difficult for young adults today are, quote, all the th- all things that revolve around traditional stability and future building. Quote, with political shifts, climate change, the pandemic, and a war in Ukraine, there's so much change changing and uncertainty in our future. Stability and future building are more in question today. So she also noted that Gen Z um, and younger millennials are more likely to experience mental health issues, including anxiety, depression, and other factors which put a damper on things like dating or let alone just physical intimacy. The uh, the isolation of the pandemic may seem like an obvious scapegoat for these problems, but experts were noticing these trends before COVID-19 was even a thing. Now, while the wide array of dating apps would appear to help younger adults find, basically, hopefully, true love or whatever, the endless possibilities of swiping right have made it more difficult for younger adults to settle down. Uh, the doctor also said that the convenience of dating apps has led people to see one another as disposable. The plethora of choices and ease of finding dates has led people to have a, quote, on to the next one, and quote, mentality, to make, and which is making dating more superficial. In other words, dating apps have made it make have made it uh matchmaking easier but keeping basically a partner is less likely meaning we are going to hook up connect you know go out on a couple of dates and if it's not 100 percent perfect you move on or i move on or whatever it is and that is becoming a common theme as opposed to just really trying to hammer these things out quote Finally, the doctor. That mentality around dating can make it harder to do the hard work of working on a relationship, which is 100% true. And I think back to like when I was, let's say, you know, a teenager, 
and obviously, you know, interested in girls and all that kind of stuff and started dating and everything like that. You know, I can I can remember back, you know, really to like my first girlfriend. I had to meet her father. I had to go through that gauntlet, you know, and and, and those were things that helped me develop social skills. They helped me develop interaction skills. And I think one of those things that, you know, the New York Post really wasn't hitting on is that I think as we are looking at social interaction, it's a huge problem because there are a lot of people that just do not know how to interact with others. They do not have that practice. And if we were all, let's say, remote sitting from home and we're working from home, it's very hard to have those interactions, whether it's just a, you know, talking at the water cooler or actually going out on dates. And that is a serious, serious problem that, that we are going to have. Not to mention, I've heard of cases where people are like, oh, yes, I've been in a serious relationship for three years and they've never actually met the person because it's been 100 percent online. And that is not just COVID. That was happening before COVID as well. So this is a huge problem. We're going to see where this goes. But I think overall and in the long run, we've got to we've got to shape up on this. And I really think we have to encourage, especially younger adults, to go out and learn those social skills, to go out and and, and feel the awkwardness and, and, and learn, you know, how to, you know, attract a mate properly, work on a relationship as opposed to just hit and run absolutely everything. So there you go. Those are my thoughts on that. That is your dating and romance news of the week. And before we head over to the next segment, I wanted to let you know, and I've done this in a couple of shows, and I keep being reminded to do this, and I always forget. Uh, basically, if you didn't know, I put out content on a daily basis, not just here on the radio where you're listening to me, but actually I put it quite a lot of places, daily podcasts and videos on some of the latest trends, technology, cybersecurity, privacy, all these kinds of things I keep day to day. And some of the segments that I do for my news section or even my breaches of the week every Sunday gets translated into this show. But I do this as essentially a labor of love. You know, I don't have any kind of monetization anywhere. I just do it to keep people informed and to keep everybody interested. But you can find me uh, basically on Twitter or Facebook at slash Nick AESP or on LinkedIn and YouTube at slash Nick Espinoza. And please follow me. I'd love to hear, I'd love to basically get a shout out for from you and and you know send me a message or whatever it is uh, but I do content daily and I hope you guys enjoy it and so that is my quick blurb and you're listening to Nick Espinosa the deep dive radio show a syndicated radio show here in podcast form on SoundCloud and make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you and now for breaches of the week and if you have a data breach to report that's local to you or the major news might have missed it Please, by all means, send it to me, and I'm glad to give you a shout-out and include it in the radio show and possibly a daily video. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and uh, Facebook at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can uh, email questions at securityfanatics.com. Again, that's questions at securityfanatics.com. And I'm more than happy to include your data breach and give you a shout-out on the air. With that, let's begin. And as always, I'd like to thank the following people that sent me a ton of this information. And that would be Barrett Peterson, Chris Fowlon, Jay Dance, and Jacqueline Wolf. Guys, thank you very much. And if you have uh, basically a topic for me or a breach for me, please let me know. And I'll give you a shout out here and also on my nationally syndicated radio show. And let's get started because this week in data breaches was absolutely off the rails. And let's start with CVS, the large pharmacy, because more than 1 billion search records... 
belonging to CVS Health were accidentally posted online and accessible to the public earlier this year. Now, the database was approximately 204 gigabytes and totaled 1.1 billion records. They had no form of authentication in place to prevent unauthorized entry, meaning if you knew where to go, you or I could have read that as well. Now, the data exposed online included customer email addresses, user IDs, custom uh, customer searches on CVS pharmacy websites for COVID-19 vaccines and other medications, according to the report. So if you basically went searching around for a vaccine or something else on their website, looks like you might have been exposed. Moving on. Let's talk about Davida Inc. I believe these are the ones that do all of the um, uh, the like colon colostomy stuff. I, I think so. They have something to do with that. But anyway, here's what's going on with Davida. On September 8th, they confirmed that they experienced a data breach after an unauthorized party accessed sensitive consumer data that basically they were storing. Now, according to Davida, we're talking names, uh, addresses, social security numbers, medical information, and health insurance information of certain individuals were compromised. They just recently sent out breach notifications. But heads up, uh, if you use Davida for all of your Oh, God, I, I want to say it's dialysis. They do dialysis. That's what they do for all their dialysis, for all your dialysis needs. Moving on, let's talk about Wilson's Gun Shop because on September 8th, they confirmed they had a data breach after an unauthorized third party gained access to sensitive consumer information that was entrusted to them as well. Now, according to Wilson Combat, as they formally go by, the breach resulted in names, addresses, and financial account information of certain parties. Now, they have basically filed notices of breaches, but they have not yet sent out letters and all of that. And according to Wilson Combat, they are estimating that 13,522 individuals in the state of Texas alone have been compromised, but we do not know the total victim uh, or number of victims just yet. So if you use Wilson Combat for your gun needs, heads up to you, you probably were compromised. Moving on, let's talk about SCAD. This is the Savannah College of Art and Design because a cyber attack on SCAD uh, basically resulted in a quote-unquote limited number of current and former students and employees vulnerable to identity theft after an unauthorized user accessed personal files, according to the university. That's all I've got right now, but heads up if you go to, went to, or have anything to do with SCAD, the Savannah College of Art and Design, you may be compromised. Moving on. Let's talk about gateway diagnostic imaging because on September 2nd, they reported a data breach with the Attorney General of Montana. Now, according to Gateway, we're talking about names, addresses, dates of birth, social security numbers, health insurance information, medical record numbers, patient account numbers, physician names, dates of service, and other information related to the receipt of radiology services, which is apparently what they do. Now, after confirming this breach, they also sent out notifications to affected parties. So heads up, patients of gateway diagnostic imaging. Moving on. Let's talk about urology, the Urology Center of Colorado. Now, this is actually an update because they have agreed to settle a class action lawsuit that was filed in response to basically 137,820 records being breached in September of last year. Now, on November 5th of last year, they sent out notification letters to advertise or, or basically uh, notification letters to their patients advising them that some of their protected health information had previously been compromised in September or 8th of last year. And so... We're talking names, addresses, dates of birth, social security numbers, medical records, uh, diagnosis, physician names, insurance provider names, guarantee names, uh, treatment cost information, and on and on and on. And so heads up, because uh, if you were part of that class action or were a patient, you may be able to file for damages and be entitled to compensation. Moving on, let's talk about the CBC Group Incorporated. CBC reported a data breach also with the Attorney General of Montana. Montana is one of those places you're required if you've got customers 
or or information on Montana citizens or Montanans, Montanans. Montanans sounds right. Montanians, Montanans. Now, according to CBC, the breach resulted in the name, social security numbers, driver's license, our uh, government ID cards, financial account numbers, passport numbers of certain individuals being compromised. And after confirming the breach and identifying everybody that was impacted by the breach, CBC Group began sending out their own notice of breach. So heads up to you, CBC group customers, whatever they do. Now, moving on, let's talk about the Lamoil Health Partners because they're facing a class action lawsuit over a June ransomware attack of this year that affected almost 60,000 of their patients. And the attack was detected on June 13th. And uh, if you recall, because I do remember talking about this one, um, basically, we're talking names, addresses, dates of birth, social security, uh, health insurance information, medical treatment information, and on and on. So if you are a patient of Lamoil, Lamoil uh, Health Partners, uh, you may be entitled to compensation sooner than later. Moving on, let's talk about Radiant Logistics because on September 1st, they reported a data breach once again to Montana after they learned that an unauthorized party accessed and removed certain files from the company's network. They have not basically released what data has been leaked, but uh, basically they are not saying right now um, what that is. They only need to report specific things like social security numbers, so maybe that wasn't part of it. We don't know. But heads up, if you have anything to do with Radiant Logistics, they went through a data breach, keeping it pretty close to the vest right now. Moving on, I want to give you a quick update on Capital One. If you recall, they had a massive data breach in July of 2019, and right now, because they are settling this class action lawsuit, you, if you are a Capital One customer uh, you know, in July or before July of 2019, you may be able to file a claim to be reimbursed, and the place to go is www.capitalonesettlement.com. Again, that's Capital One Settlement. Dot com, and the one in Capital One is spelled out O N E. Capital One Settlement.com. Go get your money. Moving on, let's talk about the SF Fire Credit Union. I'm guessing that's San Francisco Fire. Doesn't say. Now, on August 18th, they reported a data breach to basically the Attorney General of California after the organization experienced a data security incident impacting the sensitive information on certain members. We are talking names, credit card numbers, CVV numbers, that's the three-digit code on the back of your card, credit card expiration date, and PIN numbers of certain individuals. Meaning, if I had all of that, I could basically go shopping on Amazon right now with your SF Fire Credit Union debit card or credit card. Now, after confirming the breach and identifying all the affected parties, they began sending out notifications. So heads up to you if you are a member of the SF Fire Credit Union, I presume out of San Francisco, California. And real quick, I want to give you an update on Nelnet. If you recall, this is the one that got basically 2.5 million students affected. And now we're starting to see more declarations of basically where everybody is laid out. So the declaration that we saw this week is coming from Maine, and the government of Maine is stating about 15,000 students uh, basically may be affected in Maine alone. We'll see where more states uh, come out or what other organizations, but Nelnet obviously was a huge thing. Uh, the state of Oklahoma had to declare the breach last week, if you recall, and so here we are. Game on. I'm probably going to be reporting on that one for weeks. Moving on. Let's talk about medical billing company Practice Resources, LLC, because a class action lawsuit has been filed against them after the personal information of 924,138 patients of Syracuse, Syracuse, New York, area hospitals and doctor's offices was compromised in a ransomware attack on that company. So if you're in the Syracuse area, one, beautiful area, two, uh, if you use a doctor or a hospital there, you may be actually entitled to compensation sooner than later thanks to Practice Resources dumping all your stuff online. 
line. Moving on, let's talk about uh, Indonesia's intelligence agency known as BIN or BIN. I'm just going to call them BIN. It'll be easier. Now, amid issues of uh, Indonesian population's data breach uh, issues, uh, issues about a suspected leak. And again, I'm taking this from an Indonesian website, translating this into English. So please bear with me here. Now, issues about a suspected leak of sensitive data belonging to the Indonesian State Intelligence Agency or BIN have also emerged. Now, the data reportedly includes member identities, reports, and business strategies. In response to this, BIN spokesperson Wawan Harry Perwanto asserted that the issue was not true or it was a hoax. He stated that the government's internal network data is safe from hacker attacks. Quote, that's a hoax, said Wawan to BISNIS.com on Thursday, September 8th. He also explained that all data of the agency used pseudonyms. Quote, all bin data are safe, encrypted, and use fictitious names, so bin data are not leaked. There you go. We will see what happens, but if Indonesia's intelligence agency is leaking, that's obviously going to be a huge thing, especially for other intelligence communities in the world. Moving on, let's talk about Henderson and Walton Women's Center out of Birmingham, Alabama, because they disclosed a data breach that impacted more than 34,000 individuals. Now, it's unclear when this breach began, but they're saying that an employee email account was hacked, prompting an investigation. So we are talking about birth dates, social security numbers, medical information, driver's license numbers, and health insurance information possibly caught up in this breach. So if you have anything to do with Henderson and Walton Women's Center in Birmingham, Alabama... Heads up to you. Moving on. Let's talk about IHG or Intercontinental Hotels Group. This is actually pretty huge. They are a massive hospitality organization that operates 17 hotel brands around the world, and they've been compromised, obviously causing ongoing disruption to their corporation's online booking services and other services that they offer. Quote, parts of its technology systems have been subject to unauthorized activity, end quote. Now, information is still coming out on this one, but if you didn't know, IHG is a massive operation. They run six thousand twenty eight hotels in eight hundred eighty two thousand eight hundred ninety seven rooms in more than one hundred countries. It has about three hundred twenty five thousand employees and includes the hotel brands Regent Intercontinental Hotels and Resorts, Crown Plaza, Holiday Inn, Holiday Inn Express, Candlewood Suites, Atwell Suites, and even hotels. Even meaning the name of the hotel, not even hotels. Even hotels, if you get what I'm saying here. So with that, heads up to you. If you have, I'm guessing, a member number or something like that, you may have a problem or you may have a problem actually booking a stay. Moving on, let's talk about the North Face, the outdoors company, because they're the apparel brand and they were targeted in a large-scale credential stuffing attack that has resulted in the hacking of 194,905 accounts on the NorthFace.com website. Now, the credential stuffing attacks began on the website on July 26th, but the administrators detected the unusual activity on August 11th and were able to stop it on the 19th. So that's a good chunk of weeks there where they were under attack and getting hit. We are talking full names, purchase histories, billing addresses, shipping addresses, telephone numbers, account creation dates, gender, and XPLR, I'm guessing that means Explorer, pass reward records. So if you are one of the 194,000 plus that uses the NorthFace.com for all your outdoor apparel needs, heads up to you. You might have been compromised. And finally... 
We've got actually some two interesting ones. The first one is actually the uh, Los Angeles Unified School District, or LAUSD. This is the second largest school district in the United States, and they got hit this last weekend. Now, the Vice Society operation told Bleeping Computer that they were responsible for the LAUSD ransomware attack, but said they would not provide any proof of the attack until they published an entry on their, uh, basically, their dark web leak site. Now, the attackers also claim to have stolen files from compromised LAUSD systems before encrypting them with ransomware. Quote, we have 500 gigabytes of data from their network, end quote. But that seems like a normal data breach. We've talked about that before. Some rather huge school districts have been hit, like Chicago, Atlanta, New York, etc. But this is why this is part of my final breaches of the week, because an internal report identified key vulnerabilities in their data systems basically two years before this actually happened. Now, the report indicated that the district staff actually agreed with its findings and committed to addressing them, but district officials did not clarify Wednesday which of the recommended actions were actually carried out. That would be this past Wednesday. The cybersecurity audit was published in September of 2020, so literally two years ago, and conducted by outside consultants working with district technology staff under the supervision of the district's inspector general. Now, the LA Times obtained a redacted version of that prepared uh, report without basically a a report that was prepared for those without the clearance to read the whole thing. Now, the confidential portions, including most of the 38 specific findings accompanied by 38 recommendations, were not included in the report that the LA Times saw. Even so... The report in bureaucratic language sounds an alarm. In spot testing, quote, auditors were able to gain access to certain sensitive information, including a limited number of social security numbers, end quote, according to the report. Auditors were also able to obtain... LAUSD passwords enable, quote, able to convince employees to unknowingly execute malicious codes, meaning they were phishing the employees as a test. The the employees were clicking on links or opening documents that would execute things. It's very standard. We do this kind of auditing here as well. So this is obviously a huge thing. To continue, though, numerous, quote-unquote, high-risk areas were identified, including the uh, structure of the district systems, inadequate procedures, and insufficient security training for employees. Security training, I cannot stress enough, is one of the most important things you are going to do as an organization. Now, among the problems identified in 2020 that we have, and we have three of them here, were the technology division did not have a process in place to make sure the organization was complying with security standards, meaning their internal maturity and internal controls were not there to actually ensure that every time they handed a student a laptop, it was fully loaded with antivirus, threat detection, mobile device management, like all these different kinds of things that go into running a school district. The district also lacked adequate, quote, incident response training and, quote, to react, for example, to an emergency, whether it's hacking or otherwise. That's part of contingency planning, and that is contingency planning 101. Obviously a huge issue as well. Also, and this is the last point, was certain classes of computer accounts had substandard security. Maybe these were passwords that were set to never expire, and people are creature of, creatures of habit, so they use passwords everywhere. Oh, I'm gonna, I log into work all every day at my LAUSD account. I'm going to use that same password for Netflix and my bank and Facebook and everything else because I just have to remember one thing, and here we are. Obviously a huge problem. So there you go. If anything, this really underscores that if you're going through an audit, you got to execute on fixing and remediating those things as fast as humanly possible. It's something I always recommend to my clients as well. And finally, finally, 
And we have to talk about TikTok again, 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 because seriously, who is using this app anymore? Well, they're in the news right now for a possible, I say possible, data breach. I'll let you decide whether it is. But here's what's going on, because cybersecurity researchers this past Monday discovered a potential data breach in basically TikTok, the Chinese short form video app, allegedly involving up to two billion data records for their users. That's crazy. Now, uh, basically, several cybersecurity analysts tweeted about the discovery of what was, quote, a breach of an insecure server that allowed access to TikTok storage, which they believe contained personal user data. Now, I remember uh, on Monday looking through all of those tweets because obviously I follow a whole bunch of cybersecurity researchers. Some of them follow me, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there's a lot of talk on this. I was, I was looking at specifically Bob Diachenko, who was talking about this, and he's one of those people I think that stumbled onto this, quote, We've reviewed a sample of the extracted data to our email subscribers and private clients. We've already sent out warning communications. Now, Troy Hunt, who is the creator of basically the breach information site, Have I Been Pwned, posted a thread on Twitter to verify if the sample data was genuine or not. For him, the evidence is, quote, so far pretty inconclusive. That's why I'm saying, you know, I report, you decide. Now, there's been a whole bunch of details that have been posted on a whole bunch of forums, but I want to quote this one. Because I think this is important. Blue Hornet against the West posted this, quote, Who would have thought that TikTok would decide to store all of their internal backend source code on one Alibaba cloud instance using a trashy password? They posted that and then posted about how easily they could get in and download the data. Now, a Twitter spokesperson was quoted saying in news reports that the security team, quote, investigated the statement and determined that the code in question is completely unrelated to TikTok's backend source code, end quote. Now, Microsoft, on top of this, Microsoft 365 Defender research team just discovered a vulnerability in the TikTok app for Android that can let hackers take over a private short uh, short form videos um, of millions of users once you get the user to click a malicious link. Microsoft discovered a high severity vulnerability in the TikTok Android app, which could allow hackers basically to compromise users' account with a single click. That's what I'm talking about here. Now, this vulnerability, which would have required um, several issues to be chained together in order to exploit, has now been fixed by TikTok as well. Quote, Attackers could have leveraged the vulnerability to hijack an account without user's awareness if a targeted user simply clicked the specially crafted link, and that's obviously a huge thing. Now, back to this data breach of 2 billion users, just going through and looking at all of the cybersecurity researchers that, are, that have high degrees of confidence that this is absolutely TikTok data... I also have a high degree of confidence of TikTok data as well. People like Bob Dyachenko, uh, you know, are very well known in my field. And so I think that there is a good high probability that, you know, he's right. He also is not making this up. If he found the data, he found the data. If it's TikToks or not, that might be debatable, according to Troy Hunt, who is another one uh, who I actually had the pleasure of being the warm-up act for at a conference like last year. But But my point being is... Uh, it's looking like TikTok had some kind of major data breach. I'll keep you uh, up to date on this. And given all of the issues and everything and its ties to the Chinese Communist Party, and I'm not kidding about that. I've written on this. I've talked about this. Please just stop using TikTok. You're just breaching yourself every single day if you're using it. And so those were your breaches of the week. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa of the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for the Deep Dive segment where we take a closer and deeper look at a cybersecurity, cyber warfare, or technology issue around us. And if you have any suggestions for a Deep Dive segment or something you'd like me to dive into, you can once again 
find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. That's questions at securityfanatics.com. I am more than happy to take a look at it. And uh, if it meets our standards, we are more than happy to do a deep dive on it. So let's begin. And this week's deep dive was actually something that I wanted to do on last week's show when I was talking about all of the uh, security woes of the Trump administration. And then obviously uh, those followed him to Mar-a-Lago, again, doing it in the most unbiased, non-political, just the facts, ma'am, kind of way that I possibly can. And this will be no different. But this week's deep dive is entitled, Can a U.S. President Declassify Anything They Want? And the reason, obviously, I'm talking about this is because due to the, uh, you know, the events of Mar-a-Lago, which I've talked about on this radio show, uh, you know, President Trump or former President Trump, I should say, has come out and said, well, you know, I was a president. I could declassify anything I want or, you know, hey, uh, you know, basically if it left my my office, which was secure and it went to the residence, it's automatically declassified and all those kinds of things. And so we've seen a lot of that. And there's been a lot of punditry going around and a lot of opinions. And I wanted to cut basically into the facts of this. Now, this originally was prompted actually by one of my followers on YouTube. You can follow me on YouTube at uh, YouTube slash Nick Espinoza. Um, and you'll see all of these different kinds of things. But um, this individual who goes by Rotten Apple posed a question that I thought really needed my attention. And so that question is, and I quote, not being political, but my understanding is the president of the United States has the absolute ability to declassify anything he wants. Biden could give us all the secrets of Area 51 and the Kennedy shooting, and nobody could do anything about it, end quote. And I thought that was an excellent question, and it really deserved my time and attention. And for the record, if President Biden, you're actually watching this. Please declassify Area 51 in the Kennedy shooting. We would all love to read it. That alone might get you reelected. So with that, let's dive in because first things first, I think it's important to note that no one in the federal government has absolute authority without a check to their power. That includes the president of the United States. For example, the executive branch headed by the president is checked by congressional oversight. They're also checked by the Supreme Court if there's a conflict constitutionally. Just as Congress is checked by the executive branch and the judicial branch and judicial is checked, this is what we are talking about. So understand that basically system of checks and balances that we have created in the federal government. And in that vein, the president does indeed have the power to declassify documents or materials as he see fits. So... If President Biden wanted to declassify the document that, say, proves Tupac and Elvis are both alive and living at the Illuminati Hotel on the Moon, he can definitely do that. He really can. And we all know they're living at the Illuminati Hotel on the Moon. However, however, there are some guidelines that are put into place that a president adheres to in the declassification process. The first one is... The president has to be in office to have this power, meaning past presidents lose that power the moment the next president is sworn in. So, for example, then-President Obama lost the ability to declassify documents the moment that then-President Trump was sworn in, and then President Trump lost it when President Biden was sworn in, and on and on and on. When President Biden is done being president and we have a new president after him, he or she will then have that power and President Biden will lose it. No former president can retroactively declassify documents. So 
if President Trump came out right now or Obama or George W. Bush or Clinton and on and on and on basically came out publicly and said, you know what, I'm declassifying this document now or I deem all of these declassified, can't do it. That's not that's not how the system is set up. That's not how the system works. That's the first point. The second point is that the president can use designated officials that are known as original classification authorities in federal departments to act on his behalf to declassify material, and they are basically assumed to be doing so under the authority of the president because they are appointed and designated to that position. So when we have the absolute eight zillion documents in uh, basically the federal government, there are basically representatives called original classification authorities on behalf of the president that can declassify documents using presidential authority. That is the second point. Now, the third point is that there are specific regulations that these officials and the president must follow including formal reviews of the materials that they want to declassify. So point number four, if something is declassified, then there is a paper trail within the National Archive and Records Administration known as NARA. You might have heard that term bandied about in the last month or two because they are the keeper of all things paper, classified or not. And so obviously they've been at the center of this investigation as the FBI appears to have been taking classified documents out of Mar-a-Lago. Now, according to basically NARA's Standards and Law 2001.25 Declassification Markings, any material that is declassified must be marked or labeled as such once the order has been recorded. So in the case of former President Trump declassifying, let's say, this material or him claiming that, yes, well, I declassified everything. OK, he has the right to do that, or I should say had the right to do that when he was president. But then NARA would have a copy of the written order and also a receipt of the proper markings of the document or material. In other words, I have a document that is labeled top secret in my possession. I am the president of the United States. I basically submit to NARA that, yes, this document is now declassified. This document gets remarked as declassified. And there is a trail within the National Archive that shows exactly what happened to that. Now, there are exemptions to marking some classified material as declassified, but in NARA Law 2001.26 Automatic Declassification Exemption Markings, it clearly states that that needs prior approval from a panel, and that is also recorded. So, if President Trump were to come out and say, well, I declassified these, even though they're still marked, uh, you know, top secret or whatever the classification is, but I declassified these and they just weren't marked because they were exempt, then there would be a panel that approved that that could not be basically marked for whatever reason or remarked with a declassified stamp. Now, I say that to say that there are some objects that might be classified that cannot physically take like a stamp or a label or something like that. And that's oftentimes what they are talking about here. So with that, we go to point number five, because then President Trump, former President Trump could not have basically stated that he declassified things and then it simply happened due to the above protocol. For so him for so for him to go on social media and say he declassified all of this stuff is the equivalent of Michael Scott from the office shouting, I declare bankruptcy. 
it does absolutely nothing until the paperwork or processes is complete. I can't just yell, I declare bankruptcy, and suddenly all of my debts are absolved. I have to get a lawyer, I have to go to court, I have to submit paperwork showing that, you know, hey, I'm destitute, I need bankruptcy for whatever reason. There is a, basically a process. If you've ever worked with the government and if you've ever filed taxes, you know the government runs on paperwork. And so, for, for former President Trump to come out and say, oh, yes, I've declassified all of this. I officially declassify everything because I just put this out on Twitter. The answer is no, it doesn't work that way. And so that is basically the framework for how classification and declassification by a president works. But here's the interesting thing, because in the news, we have heard from, you know, basically a lot of different reports, anonymous sources and all of that. I'm not going to speculate for the record if this is true or not, but there are reports that say that nuclear material has been found at Mar-a-Lago among those documents. Now, President Trump coming out and saying, well, you know, if you had any nuclear doc or if I had any nuclear documents at Mar-a-Lago, I've automatically declassified them. The answer is no. The president can't do that. Now, here's what's interesting about this, because this is the nuclear, the process for nuclear documents, and they're not classified. There's something else. Here's what's going on with them. The U.S. Congress passed the Atomic Energy Act that actually imposes its own legal restrictions on information regarding things like how to build a nuclear weapon or enrich uranium or other nuclear materials, information, nuclear information on our adversaries, our allies, all that kind of stuff. That's not classified. That data is actually considered restricted material, which is legally not the same as being classified. So in order to unrestrict or quote unquote declassify nuclear secrets, the process is actually different from what I just mentioned, and the president cannot do that unilaterally on his own. Now, in order to declassify anything restricted or unrestricted, anything that's restricted as a nuclear secret, the senior officials of both the departments of defense and energy have to agree. Now, if they disagree, meaning defense disagrees with energy or energy disagrees with defense, then the president steps in and becomes the tiebreaker. Further, and this is interesting, the Atomic Energy Act makes it actually a crime to disclose restricted nuclear information without prior authorization, and that includes the President of the United States. So, if the FBI recovered restricted material, uh, basically, or restricted nuclear documents or material from Mar-a-Lago, then that could actually result in criminal charges being filed just on that specific thing. The speculation of like, you know, does this crime make him culpable under the Espionage Act? I am not qualified to say that. I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on TV. I can Google with the best of us, but it is an actual crime. If I had a nuclear document, I just, I don't know, I'm a nuclear engineer. I work on a missile base. And for whatever reason, I, I took a document home and I did not have authorization to do that, I am committing a crime. That is not in dispute. That is, that is an actual statute in the Atomic Energy Act. So that said, all of that said, there are some scholarly legal disputes over if a president can declassify something without telling anyone, but that is essentially unprecedented as all presidents, as far as we know, 
have followed the actual procedures that I just laid out. And we have extensive paper trails from Obama and W and Clinton and on and on and on. So basically, this is both sides of the aisle, both Republicans and Democrats, whoever is in that office, have been following this until possibly now. And so this obviously is, I think, going to be something that is really interesting because, you know, people, you know, we're talking about compliance law here. This isn't necessarily criminal law, although it could be criminal law if there is nuclear uh, documents in play here. Uh, I don't think there's anything civil. So we're going to see what happens with this. I think this is going to be interesting, but this is, and again, it's nonpartisan. This applies to every single president that has ever been or ever will be, man, woman, or, well, we probably won't have a child president Although, you never know. So, we will see. But this was your deep dive of the week. I thought it was a great question. I thought it was a much needed question, especially since there's just so much stuff going out and around on this particular subject. So, I'm glad we're talking about it. But that is how you declassify a document. Or rather, can the president declassify a document? Nuclear? Not so much. There you go. And thank you so much for tuning in this week. It was another fun show, and I think we covered a lot of really good stuff. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a really good time, and I hope you keep tuning in. Thank you very much for listening to the Deep Dive Radio Show here with Nick Espinoza. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, absolutely anything, once again, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. And you can always send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. Don't be shy. I love the feedback. We've been having a great time with the show. And as always, stay safe and stay online, everyone. Thanks for listening.